All right, let's all stand, and uh, we'll read the Word of God in terms of what His uh, message is for us today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. Amen? You may be seated. There was a time when the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt. And they, as you know, Passover, passed through the Red Sea, And then they're in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, troubled, excited, worried, wondering what's next. Ever been there? And at that time, God spoke to Moses and said, I want you to pray. I want you to get Aaron, your brother, and I want him to pray over the people. But I don't want him to wing it. I want him, I'm going to actually have you write this down, and I want you to have him pray this prayer over the people. We know it now as the ironic blessing. And I want to pray that prayer over each one of you today. As our hearts are open to receive the Word of God, direction for His body, the church. So again, in Numbers chapter 6, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And may he be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom and give you peace. That was the prayer. And I want you to receive that prayer today, knowing that you're not alone, you're not on your own, that God has given us a counselor, an advocate. In fact, Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, then the helper cannot come. But once I go, he can come. And he will be the one that not only walks alongside of you. In the Greek, the word is paraclete. It's the word given to, the Holy, uh, to describe the Holy Spirit. But he says, not only will he walk alongside of you, he will be in you. The Holy Spirit dwells within the hearts and the lives of believers today. You're not on your own. Amen? So today... I want to talk about our behavior. I'm going to tell you ahead of time where I'm going. I want to talk about, I want to define godliness because sometimes we have these Christian words that actually need to be defined. You know, sometimes we're really good at speaking Christianese and we sort of nod our heads, but every so often we need to say, okay, what exactly does that mean? So I want to know what godliness means. And then Paul is going to say to Timothy, in the later times, there's going to be doctrines of demons that is going to circulate through the church. We should probably be aware of what that is. And then finally, I want to give you a remedy for a seared conscience. But we're going to pray again. And we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to do his work. And please know, please know this. This is one of those messages that cuts both ways. In other words, just like you, I am on the receiving end of this. Now, last week, Trevor took us through the qualifications of deacons diaconous servants. And then as I was listening to it, I heard the phrase over and over again, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And then as he went on, he says, because my burden, my yoke is light, my burden is easy. And I started scratching my head on that, and I thought, oh, brother, am I in trouble? Because what I'm giving today doesn't feel like light and easy. It feels more like heavy. And yet, the Spirit of God is the one who dwells within us. And we need to know what his yoke is. You see, usually when you read that verse, you don't understand the Hebraic understanding of that. 
So when we read, when Jesus says, uh, come unto me all of you that are weary and burdened and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, we sort of in our minds think of what? Oxen and a yoke or whatever. Now, if you lived in those times, the yoke was the teachings of your rabbi. And so Jesus is actually saying, if you're tired and if you're weary and if you're beaten up and if you're lonely and if you don't have any direction to your life, come to me. Take my teachings, my yoke, and learn of me, for I'm gentle. And so that's where we find ourselves today, wanting to say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill our atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. So this is one of those messages that I'd like you to kind of get some elbow room and realize, as I said, it cuts both ways. I'm not pointing I don't have an agenda. I don't have a subset of people that I'm directing this message to. It cuts both ways. We've gone through some difficult passages in trying to understand how we can live them out in this day. And I know that we have some troubled people. And yet we have the comfort of God's Word. And may we receive it today. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that we're not alone, that you're in our midst. And as we read your word, we are reminded often that you would make the statement, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. That's our prayer, Lord. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to Anthem today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We begin in verse 14 again, where he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, church. In the Greek, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And then he says, it's the called out ones, the church of the living God, a pillar, by the way, as you know by now, this was written to the church or to those in Ephesus. That's where Timothy was being sent. And when he makes this statement, pillar, you should understand that as you walk down, even today, as you walk down the old cobblestone stones of Ephesus, there are pillars everywhere. And we've talked about that one place the temple of Diana or Artemis. Literally, there were a hundred pillars there. 
So Paul is wanting to paint this image in you and him basically saying, all those pillars that you see mean nothing. The church of the living God is the ultimate pillar, the buttress of truth. And so the question there is simple. How should one behave in the household of God? So I want to give you four things of what we should be doing, and then I want to flip the coin and say sometimes we need to understand what we shouldn't be doing, right? Both are needed. So in the household of God, our behavior needs to be like the following. We need to take care of one another. We need to encourage. We need to edify and build up. We do need to exhort one another from time to time. And we need love, love, and more love. Amen? That's the easy part. Now, what should we avoid? We have to avoid backbiting, gossip, slander, and the opposite of diakonos. We cannot tolerate and allow entitlement or those who fail to understand the need to serve. I'm reminded, and, and many times that I speak, I appreciate the comments that you give me. I love when you tell us stories about Israel, okay? So I have to give you another one. For me, I absolutely love the Sea of Galilee. When you see it for the first time, when you kind of go over the ridge of the Galil, and you look out, you're going to sit there and thinking, smaller than I would have thought. And yet, so much happened in this place. This is where Jesus called home, right? Then when he was expelled from Nazareth and he was made his way to Capernaum, there it is. It's right on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. I love to paint that picture. I'd love to walk that with you. But where I want to go is not during that time. It's after he's been crucified and resurrected. And most people don't make this connection, but after the resurrection, when he speaks to Mary, you know what his words were to her? Go and tell my disciples and Peter... There's a sermon in itself there. To meet me in the Galilee. Now that's going to be at least three to five day walk. So that's not just around the corner, I'm going to show up. No, you're going to go back to where it all began for you. And there is this beach. This small little beach that's there. A place called Tabcha. And it's there when you see it for the first time then I'm going to be able to say to you, that's a great fishing spot. Because in that area, the disciples caught 153 fish. How do I know that number? Well, it's in the scriptures. You can read John 21. And it's always mind-boggling to me 
that that number is so specific, which means somebody literally, but they're fishermen, so you realize why, somebody had to count. He didn't generalize it and said, and they caught about 152. No, 153. And there, not only do you see the fishing spot, but you also see where Jesus was on the shore. Because in John 21, we're told it's early morning, it's foggy and hazy, and he's cooking breakfast for the guys fishing. And when they realize it's him, somebody blurts out, it's the Lord! And of course, Peter, our ready-shoot-aim guy, jumps out of the boat and starts to swim in, but they make it to shore before him, but this is powerful because this is the go tell my disciples and Peter moment. And, and whether you put yourself in that crew of 11 now, not 12, and Jesus is cooking the excitement of we're with the Lord, I always imagine Peter's a couple steps away, not really wanting to make eye contact. Why? Because of a cock that crowed. Because three times, when humanly he needed it the most, Peter said, I never knew the man. And there hadn't been that connection again. And you're wondering what's going to happen. So I don't see Peter as the life of the party right now. I see him sort of in the background. Not his nature, by the way, right? And then there comes that moment where Jesus, I think, gets alone with Peter. And that's why this beach is incredible, because he's going to ask him three questions. He's going to say, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's undone now but it's part of the healing process for him as he's restored. But do you know what Jesus tells him during this restoration? Because this is where I'm going to get back to the behavior in the church. What does he say to Peter? Peter, do you love me? You know I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my flock. Behavior in the church. We need to feed one another. We need to edify one another. This world is great at tearing down and discouraging we need to encourage one another. Paul says, you need to know how to behave in the household of God. Holy Spirit, we would ask right now that you speak this to our hearts, that you sear this into our minds, that you give us the strength to walk in your ways that we would behave in this manner in the ecclesia of the church that's called out, which is the buttress of truth 
and the pillar that our culture and society needs today. In the Bible, and I know I've got time issue here, in the Bible there are 59 references to our behavior to one another. I don't have, I'm not going to give you all 59, but I do want you to open your minds. I believe that the Word of God does not return void. It's a promise. And so as I pour this into your minds, you may not get it all, but I think the Holy Spirit will do His work. So how are we to behave in the church with one another? Let me start with the negatives. Stop passing judgment. That's from Romans. Paul in Galatians says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed. He says, let us not be conceited, provoking and envying one another. Don't lie to one another. Do not slander one another. And one of my favorites, don't grumble against each other. Those are the negatives. And here's what we're to do. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Instruct, serve one another. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate. Forgive each other. Consider others better than yourselves in humility. Bear with one another. Encourage each other. Spur each other on towards good and love. And confess your sins to each other. And pray for one another. And offer hospitality to one another. And then more times than all of those that I've mentioned, we're exhorted to love, love, love one another. So Paul is saying, Timothy, when you go back and you establish this church, yeah, you're going to need leaders, but here's the culture of the church. Here's who you are. And then he goes on in verse 16, and he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And later, in the sixth chapter, he makes this statement. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So how do we define that? What is godliness? I think it's pretty simple, actually, like most spiritual things. Godliness just means God-likeness. Do you know that God actually wants us to be like him? Boy, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? That's deep. 
His purpose in creating us, he created us as image bearers. He created us like him after his likeness. So we have to ask the question, what is he like? And we don't have the time to go through everything to describe God and what he's like. But here's a few. He's love. God wants love to dominate our being. God is pure. God is set apart. He's holy. And those attributes he wants in his people as well. God is kind and compassionate. Actions, not words. God is patient. I actually like the King James word here. God is long-suffering, right? And thank God. And so we're created to be like him, but here's the bad news. You cannot be like God with your best effort, no matter how hard you try. It isn't within our nature, our power to be like God. The only way I can be like God is to allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in my life. There are three pillars that I want to leave you with today. The first pillar is called justification. And it's by what Christ did for us alone. There's nothing you can do to earn are to be justified before God. Jesus did it all. Amen? We are justified by Christ alone. The other pillar is glorification. I got bad news for you. If you're looking for glorification in this life, it ain't coming. But the good news is that Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, you'll never die. And there's going to be a moment in time where you're going to be glorified because you're going to be like him because you're going to be with him. For the believer, we're told death has no victory over you. That sting is gone. And I believe that the moment you breathe your last breath, the first thought or the first experience you have, and John, we're told that he will receive you. Amen. So those are the two pillars, but now we've got this big middle gap, and we're living in it right now, and this is a gap called sanctification. And you know what? It's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's taking you right where you're at, and what's his job? To make you more like Jesus. And so we read that he will convict you. Anybody ever feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Oh, really? Only a handful? Should I unleash him on you right now? It's his job. He's going to convict you. He's going to point out the things that don't measure up to who Jesus is and what he's about. The Holy Spirit will convict you. The Holy Spirit will empower you. You can't do it on your own. 
He's now in you, and it's a dynamic power. You don't have to do it on your own strength. You need to lean in. You need to spend time with him. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a ghost. He's an entity. Holy Spirit, you are welcomed here. Will you open your heart to him and say, guide me, lead me, protect me, empower me? He makes the word of God come alive. And he will remind you of all the things that Jesus said. It's his job. This sanctification process is where we're living now. Do you know how to behave? Did you hear all those one another's? Anybody get 100% on those scores? No. And yet, will the Holy Spirit say, it's okay, you're doing good enough? No. He will work with you because his job is to make you more like Jesus. Like I said, his burden is easy and light. I'm not sure, but I do know this. He comes alongside of us to assist. And then he goes on to say, I'll get it. This is probably a hymn in the early church, this next section. It says, he was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world, and he was taken up in glory. Manifested in the flesh. If you were to ask me, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? I would say it's not the resurrection. I would say the greatest miracle in the Bible is the incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That means he was declared to be. It's his job. He was seen among angels. The angels saw the earthly ministry of Jesus. He was proclaimed among the nations. That's what we're doing today. He was believed on in the world. Do you believe in him? You're sitting here as the called out ones, and then it was, he's taken up in glory. This is a hymn that the early church sang together. As a good reminder of who we are and what we're about. And let me give you one last snapshot before we go into the next section. The ultimate picture of God-likeness, godliness, who we're called to be like, comes from Philippians. And it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our example. Now, I'll wrap it up. There's no chapter break, by the way, in the original text sort of stuff. So we go right into chapter 4 where he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Some will depart from the faith. It doesn't mean that they'll lose their ability to believe, but I think it means that they'll lose the content of what Christians should believe. It it describes the missing of the essentials the teachings of the Christian faith. When some depart from the faith, they are abandoning those teachings, the pillars of Christianity. And then we're told about doctrines of demons. And this speaks of the specific teachings of those deceiving spirits. Know this. Demons are theological majors, okay? They have systems of doctrines. Their job is to get us orbiting other planets, to move us away from the essentials. And so the question should be, what are the essentials? The deity of Jesus? Salvation by Jesus and grace alone. The resurrection of Christ. The gospel. The inerrant word of God. The Trinity. I could go on and on, but those are the essentials. I saw this posted on my Facebook page this week, and I thought I'd share it with you. Stop arguing about the rapture. Stop arguing about end times and translations. Stop arguing about the Trinity, spiritual gifts, and all that stuff. And please, would somebody just go and tell others about Jesus? We can get so caught up in the non-essentials that we forget to simply go and tell people about Jesus. every major revival. And I'm glad that I was part of one, and I long for another one. At the heart of it, it wasn't some of these extreme teachings that orbit different planets. It's the revival of the essentials of the gospel. 
You know what this world needs to hear? They don't need to hear your opinions on X, Y, and Z. They don't need to hear about the progressiveness of our culture. You know what they need to hear about? The love of God. The power of the words, Jesus loves you. Jesus created you. Jesus wants a relationship with you. That's the message we're to give in this day. Amen? Amen. Well, I'm going to wrap it up because I know I'm out of time, so if the worship group will come up, maybe I'll have part two some other time. My closing thoughts are going to deal with a seared conscience, and it's important for me to go over this because Paul's going to warn us that in this day and age, if we move away from the essentials, the work of the enemy, by the way, isn't catastrophic in causing believers to walk away from their faith in a moment like that. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I think I'm going to fall away today, okay? No, what happens is this process of erosion, okay? And it's the process of our consciences being seared. It's repeated exposure to evil. Have you noticed the state of our world today? We're, we're, we're in a mess. And we didn't wake up today. It's been a process, right? It's been a process 20 years ago. If we were in a time machine and we could see the future, we would never guess that we would be where we're at today. Right? But how did we get here? Little by little. For me, as a grandfather, I was down in San Diego and I took my kids to a movie, my grandkids to a movie. We saw The Flash. Okay? Pretty thing, I'm thinking pretty safe or whatever. I don't want to offend anybody. But have you noticed that even, and I'm not getting into culture, I don't want to get into gender, I don't want to get into any of that, but have you noticed just language these days? Have you, and I'll, I can't say the word because I grew up thinking this is the worst word that you can actually say. It's the F word, right? Have you realized how much of that's in our culture in common language today? No matter what movie, what show you might put on, it's like F this, F that. It's everywhere. And I'm thinking, how did we get here? That used to be the one thing that you would never, ever say, right? And so as I'm watching The Flash with my, my grandkids sitting there, and I don't want to spoil it. Maybe I do want to spoil it for you, you know? At the, at, you know, I, I'm dealing with Batman, and I'm dealing with all these, oh, that's another Batman, you know, that sort of stuff. And, and I can, you know, it's like the erosion. I, I can handle the S word. But at the very end, at the very end of this movie for kids, in my mind, the Flash says, what the F? 
It's at the very end, and I'm sitting there thinking, you've got to be kidding me. And, and I realize that's a minor thing in comparison to everything else that is going on in our culture and society today, right? But I just pointed out to say, our world's a mess. And, and Paul is going to say, there is going to be some in the latter times that are going to walk away from their faith. And why are they going to walk away from their faith? Not because they woke up one day and say, I'm done with Christianity. It's because of the process of erosion. It's because the culture came in like a flood. It's because they wanted to be inclusive and not exclusive. It's because of a failure to understand the yoke of our rabbi. How do we keep our minds from being seared? I only know of one way. A good conscience is powered by the Spirit and set by the Word. You must hide God's Word in your heart you must train your conscience to sound the alarm to keep you from sin. The only thing, or the thing that we need more than ever in this day, is not to take our Bibles and to use them as a weapon, pumping people. But you have to understand, the thing that will keep you grounded, the thing that keeps you from any form of erosion, is to hide the Word of God in your heart. I have a challenge. It's not for all of you, but I have a challenge for many of you. 23 years ago, I was reading through the book of Deuteronomy, and I read this one section that said, when a king took the throne, the one thing that he needed to do is to handwrite his own copy of the law. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 17. When I read that, the Holy Spirit that dwells within me gave me one of those gut punches and said, why don't you do that? Why don't you write out your own copy of the Bible? And I had just finished reading the biography of Martin Luther, and I understood the many different Bibles that he actually hand wrote. And so what was my response to the Holy Spirit? How can you say, you know what, I'd like to do that, but I'm too busy. Oh, you're too busy. And so I said, okay, I'll start. And I got one of these journals, and I started handwriting my own copy of the Bible. And I was sitting at the table and my, he's not here today so I can tell the story. My youngest son comes up to me and says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing out my own copy of the Bible. And he looks at me and he says, doesn't it say somewhere you're not supposed to do that? And I said, I'm not writing what I want it to say. I'm writing what it actually says. I'm going to have my own copy of the Bible. 
And my son Jesse looks at me, pauses, and as only he could say, he says, hey, Dad, um, you think when you die, I could have it? <laughs> and I thought at that moment, if I ever finish this thing, it will be the greatest gift that I could ever give to my kids. And I would hope that if they fought over any kind of an inheritance at all, they would fight over who gets Dad's Bible. It took me 25 years, and I finished. I wrote it out. <laughs> Keep in mind, this isn't the purpose. I wrote it out in the New King James. So when I met Chris Loring, he says, we use the ESV. I said, I ain't. I spent too long writing this out by hand. I ain't starting over. I don't think I have that many years left in me. But I will tell you this. That time spent with the Bible open and writing it out, I've never felt closer to God than in those moments. And it's an anchor for my soul. It is a firm foundation. It's what sanctifies us. We need to know what the Bible says about the world we're living in in this day. We need to embrace it and stand for it and proclaim it. When Jesus died on the cross, we're told that the soldiers took the spear and they jabbed it in his side. And do you know what came out? Blood. This pillar, we're justified by what Jesus did. What can wash away our sins and make us clean? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I already told you about the resurrection, our glorification. But you know what else came out? It's water. Blood and water. And we're told that this water is cleansing for us. And then in typology, water is the word of God. And we're to wash ourselves daily in God's word. If ever there was something written about Anthem, I would pray that it wouldn't just say, they're the ones that always say it's all about Jesus. I would also hope it would say, they are devoted to the Word of God in this day, in this culture. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. And may the Lord give you his peace. Amen.